Welcome back, everyone. We're live for another week of growing with my fellow growers. Happy Father's Day to any of the fathers out there. And this is Jack Greenstock, your host this week, joined as always by an amazing panel. I'll pass over first to a father himself, Spartan Grown. Cheers, Spartan. <laughs> thanks, Jack. Um, thanks, everybody. Thanks, chat. Uh, I'm Spartan Grown. You can find me at uh, on Instagram at Spartan Grown. It's all one word, no spaces. And that's the only social media I use is uh, Instagram. So don't fall for the pretenders. I also have an email. You can, if you don't do Instagram, you can send me an email at spartangrown at gmail.com. And I can help you with all your cultivation needs. I guess I don't have to say organic or synthetic because all of them. <laughs> <laughs> like to hear that. Next up, Matthew Gates. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Gates. I'm an integrated pest management specialist. So that means I work with people mitigating, uh, preventing, but also curing and treating pest issues. But it's way much more better to uh, prevent rather than cure. And uh, if you are interested, you can check out my YouTube channel, Xenthanol, for videos about pests and plant health and that sort of a thing. Great to have you as always. Next up, Dr. MJ. Hey guys, yeah, happy Father's Day out there to everyone. Happy Juneteenth. And uh, I am Dr. MJ Coco from CocoForCannabis.com. I'm happy I just barely got here in time for the show, but I am here on time for the show. So it should be another good one. And uh, yeah, go to love everyone. Last and certainly not least, the American one. Hello, Jack Panel and everyone in chat. It's always good to see everybody. Uh, I'm the American one on YouTube and the American one underscore with underscore 18s on the IG. And yeah, 18s is A-C-H-E-N-E-S. And it's basically uh, the scientific term for uh, seeds. So, yeah, that came up recently. And, yeah, I guess, you know, the phonetic sound, the phonetic pronunciation is not alliteration. Spelling, so I just pointed that out. Yes, thank you. Yeah, it almost looks like okay. a cheens, not a yeah. cheens. Yeah, that's always been a fun thing. People are like, I thought it meant like pimples, like acne. I was like, nah. Like from other countries. <laughs> We're glad to have you as always. And thank you for making that clarification. I'm on, like Spartan mentioned earlier, I'm just on, I'm not on Facebook. If there's any fake accounts, I guess it's where a lot of the fake accounts pop up, but I am on Instagram as Jack Greenstock and Jack underscore Greenstock for my backup. And then Twitter. I also have a can of buzz, but I almost never use it. But if you do want to get uh, in contact with me, I check it like at least once a month, but usually once every few weeks. Anyway, uh, those are the three that I can think of that I'm on. And if you don't have social media, like Spartan mentioned earlier, you could email me jackgreenstock47 at gmail.com. But this week, we're going to be talking a little bit about grow equipment first, and then in the second end of the show, or whenever we're done talking about equipment, maybe talking a little bit about uh, plant training techniques. And one of the things, as a cheap home grow, we do want to uh, stay you know, as frugal as possible and, and be affordable with our equipment. But I've also heard and used the saying, quality is cheaper in the long run. So if you invest in your equipment and buy something good the first time around, it can actually save you money uh, in the long run. So... I guess just to uh, pass it around the panel, maybe you could list one piece of like equipment, whether it's a pot, a grow light, um, anything that you use in your grow, a fan, a dehumidifier, something that has benefit you that you've enjoyed and felt like was a good investment. And then we're going to go around and maybe do bad investments that we uh, didn't feel like were good purchases that we maybe got for our grow room. And I'll start with Spartan. And I think the one that comes to my mind first and foremost is... Um my sip containers that I've been growing in for shoot five years, maybe more on some of them. And it's a good example of kind of what you're saying is they're more expensive than a normal pot for sure. 
and um but in the long run because they're made of all plastic and they've lasted and i'm just able to reuse them and in fact now i'm just not even emptying them after every harvest so i'm just wheeling them around and man that's probably my best i think that was probably my my favorite thing just thinking off the top of my head of uh, equipment in my grow was just a sip container because how it i don't want to say revolutionized but makes it way easier to water and, and and all that and and the results that i get from it i i i don't i'm just very happy with them i've definitely sung praise to my sip container as well but i'll pass it next to dr mj and see uh what he thinks as far as a, a great purchase that whether it was expensive or inexpensive uh just did well in your grow yeah i'm kind of drawn towards the the pot side of things too. I was going to say probably like my, my self-training saucers, I kind of made those myself, um, but it really transformed the way that I was able to manage my grow when I first made them. Um, some system to, to handle runoff, if you're going to be watering to runoff is really helpful. Um, even more so than having like an, uh, a side to do the watering, if at least you can have something to take the runoff away. So uh, I'm, I'm kind of thinking that, I mean, you know, like there's lots of different other kinds of equipment, like lights or whatever that, that obviously you need to be able to grow indoors. But, um, when it comes to like a, a particular thing, I would go with those. And can you just describe a little bit, I've actually seen a video of your setup. And if you have a Instagram post or a YouTube video showing it, you could do the share screen, or if you just maybe talk through a little bit more in greater detail for somebody. Oh, I have a whole tutorial on the self-training saucers on my site. Let me, I could sort of navigate to that before sharing my screen. Um, but yeah, so basically I just put uh, like a saucer up on um two by fours like cut three two by fours and laid them on their end so they're you know three and a half inches tall and uh basically attach the top saucer to that and then i put a bottom saucer underneath those so that'd be easier to move around um and then i attached a drain line to that top saucer and that gave me about three and a half inches right a vertical lift that was enough to drain the water from the plants down into a catchment and put a pump in that catchment on a float switch and there was, you know, within that three and a half inches, there was enough room to um, like drain the saucers and fill the catchment and pump it out of there without sort of, you know, overflowing anything or whatever. Um, you don't want to take up more height than that because, um, you know, everybody runs out of room. So doing a gravity drain with only, you know, a three and a half inch lift, that's what I was originally sort of gearing towards um here yeah i've seen as large as a five gallon bucket so i mean you compared to a five gallon bucket cut down several inches maybe even a whole foot off of that and everybody would say hey do you want three more inches of head space in your grow i'm pretty sure everyone's gonna say yeah to that unless you have like 20 foot ceilings so uh that's a really good you know something simple that you can make yourself it looks like you're sharing the screen now and boom there it is check that out people so it looks like um the two by fours on their side are kind of making the top one lean a little bit at the angle. So it all drains down. Well, you kind of lean, leave a space there so that it's not supported in that one corner. You can see that I'll scroll down here to some of the, see, I got all the supplies you need to do this. Um, and then the step-by-steps, but this is sort of the, 
the plan view. So you arrange the two by fours in the bottom saucer like that. And then you put the, the drain hole in this end, which is basically unsupported. So it always will be like the low point. Does that make sense? Yeah, and the weight of the water is probably enough just because it's a plastic saucer to concave it with no support of the wood underneath it in that hole. And so, yeah, because it's not that big of a gap. I'll go back up to the picture. Like, you know, it's it's being supported in most places, but the saucer will just have a little bit of flex there where, you know, that part of the saucer can can go down. A lot of people have these. A lot of people have followed these instructions. I bet some of the people that are listening, here, I'll see some other pictures that you can. And then here, the drain line, I just put uh, uh, a little uh, screen saucer, a uh, little cone screen um, washer, and it's actually attached to the bottom um, with super glue. I tried a lot of different things to get that thing to, to stick. So it's like stuck up under there um, such that the, the screen pops up into the top. And that basically keeps you know, it gives you a point to clean out. It strains the, the cocoa and keeps most of cocoa or whatever or the growing medium, you know, that, that funnels down through there from ending up in the, the catchment. So all this stuff then goes into this bucket. Let me go to the next page. So all those drain lines feed into this bucket. And inside that bucket is this pump that's on a float switch. So all the drains float into there. And as soon as it rises up, basically right to the bottom where those um, washers let the water in, it, it reaches the level that the pump pumps it out of the tent to wherever you want it to go at that point. In my case, just to another bucket that's outside the tent that's easier to, to empty. And then you use that to water your house plants and stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, like, and I, I'm not growing right now. So my wife's kind of on me about like, you know, where's my runoff water? We don't have any right now. Um, but yeah, we use uh, all of that water for, for other purposes. So we pump it to a, a bucket and I take that bucket and I have a, a funnel and I funnel it into like one gallon water buckets, you know, that came with bottled water at one point um, and leave those for my wife to use in, in the plants. Cool. Well, that looks like a really solid system. I'm sure some people are like, wow, that's genius compared to uh, yeah. going through and like vacuuming out or doing a, I used a like siphon valve for a little while. So compared yeah. to all the other options that I've actually implemented in the past, this is a whole lot. Uh, this little pump here is kind of expensive and you kind of should get a good pump here. Um, it's a little giant, like shallow pan condensate pump. It's like 80 or 90 bucks. It might be more than that by now. Um, but other than that, the whole system, you know, was just like some saucers and some washers and super glue and, you know, time to put it together. So it looks yeah. like a great way to check you for just the use pH. A the pump there and you get that at any DC. hardware store too, just in a pinch. Yeah. The other thing is you could tell uh, that you've built your own watering systems and stuff before and you're comfortable with like the grommets and uh, like O-rings and all that drilling uh, the right yeah. size holes. Because uh, if you get a bad seal on some of that stuff, you can have leaks. So just make sure that you uh, do yeah, these don't, seals. These don't have to hold back water because they're always above the water line. So they're basically just holding the lines that, that drip into that bucket. But yeah, for sure. Um, 
some people have set these buckets up so that those will be flooded. In my case, like those enter at like two inches off the ground. And remember the water left the saucers at like three and a half inches. So there's like an inch and a half fall between the saucer and where the line enters that bucket. And then in those two inches, like the, the pan, the, this pump pumps out at like one and three quarters inch depth or whatever, when it rises to one and three quarter inches. So it never has to rise up as high as the, the lines come into that bucket. This is an extremely practical solution for anybody who wants to, uh, you know, take some of the manual labor out of uh, handling the water and have a more convenient access to it, whether it's for testing or, you know, using to water other plants or something like that. Yeah, cool. Uh, I'll stop sharing and pass it on to the next one. So next up, we've got the American one. I'm curious uh, what your thoughts are on something that you purchased as far as equipment that you felt like was a good use of your funds that you've enjoyed in your grow. I've been thinking hard, like all the lighting has been you know, it gets old and then, you know, it got replaced. Um, I think maybe my IO thermometer is my favorite uh, tool that I have. I'm constantly, I have like three of them all scattered about and I use it constantly. Um, yeah, other than that, I can't, re everything else gets replaced. Scissors, I had some good scissors, but even those get dull after, uh, after a lot, even sharpening them. I have like sharpening stuff and I don't know, but um yeah, I guess that's my take on that. And I, I and the worms, but, but worms, that's worth the money, even though I had a, a little, uh, you know, meltdown, a, a worm apocalypse. But uh, yeah, I just got more and yeah, I'm back on it. So that's hey, where I'm at. You learned something from it. Yeah I'm, oh yeah. I'm sure the first round paid for itself and the worm castings you oh, made. Yeah, by far. So many, so many runs with them. <clears throat> But What's yeah, education? it still was devastating. Yeah, it was educating. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, sometimes in our grows, when we do have like a loss, we have to just take that educational thing and, and move forward from it and don't get too discouraged because everybody comes across stuff like that. And uh, Matthew, speaking of that, IPM is often sometimes where people have losses and struggles. And I'm curious whether it's IPM related or uh, even grow equipment related, if there's something that you've invested in for growing that you felt like got good return on your investment. I think I see it right there now on the video, but I'll pass it to you. You're on mute still, I think. <laughs> yes, that's right. So this is a, this is something people who've worked with me have seen me use this contraption. This is a uh, this is a wash repair glass set actually, and there's these uh, lenses here that. Um, uh, well, they're not. First of all, I just want to say that's not very cheap. I mean, it's not very expensive, rather. It's very cheap. Well, Matthew, so uh, you know it's how easy to use replace. Things, don't hurt yourself. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> this, uh, th this particular model here is um, somewhat older, uh, but that kind of gets to the one of the first points, which is that it gives you pretty good magnification and is not super expensive to get. Um, these lenses do come out, um, and uh, there's different magnifications, 10 to 15 to 25. I like to give a... Um, I'm right eye dominant. So I put the 25 on my right eye and I have like a 10 or a 15 on my left eye. But to be honest, I almost never have to use this other one. Sometimes it can be helpful to go like kind of switch between one or the other. What's also nice is that it's got these uh, lights here, um, which has Those actually been really nice. helpful. Yeah. Super yeah, helpful. 
you can orient them too, which is kind of neat. Um, and there's a strap that comes around. They, they come, the ones that I have, they come with a, uh, um, either like a regular glasses or just like, or like a band. And the band is of course superior because it doesn't fall off your face when you're looking downwards. And what else do we want to say about, that's really it, honestly. Um, it's super easy to, to utilize this thing. And I, I often tell people, if you're trying to scout for bugs, you should be using things like this for sure. Um, it's like 10 to $15 for sometimes more than one, depending on where you're getting them. And the different models like this, this one's, uh, the name says, I think, Belishi. Yes, it does. But um, I, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't know anything about the company or anything or if that name means anything here, but these were not uh, expensive. I do like all the features though, the LEDs, especially um, in like the morning or evening hours if you're outdoor or if you're looking at your plants like shortly after the lights out or shortly before the lights come on, uh, giving you the ability to look into the shaded parts or dark parts of the canopy and still have clear vision and being able to manipulate it. So if it's like kind of washing everything out, if it's too bright, you can kind of angle it out as you're looking and see how much of that light assistance that you need so i'm actually surprised to hear how inexpensive they are because you can get a crappy little jeweler's loop for more than that at some places yeah you know so to have something that you could wear with multiple magnification have the ability to adjust it if you wanted i'm sure there's even higher magnification if you wanted it for like trichomes for example and you wanted to get like 40 or 60 or something like that um, it looks like those little lenses pop out and you can just pop new ones in uh, depending on the use i'm sure certain watches have smaller pieces so they have to get more fine detail and it's cool that we're able to cross-platform apply some of these things and uh it can work for ipm or it can work for knowing your harvest times and things like that so i think that's actually a really great example of uh grow equipment there you have any super more helpful on to be hands-free too that's like yeah. the number one thing it can help you fucking use the other hand just to stabilize yourself so you're not moving all over that's exactly huge. yeah because my my head is a lot more stable than my hands i have arthritis in both hands my hands shake like really really badly um i've broken all my fingers so that makes it uh pretty difficult to keep my hands still but something like that would be a lot more ideal so great recommendation we, we can't ignore how cool time. they look too guys i mean that that's wow. the coolest thing that, that I, i've ever seen on this show so i, I just had to not, <laughs> not let steampunk. that go by without yeah, saying very steampunk for sure this, this is this is peak um you know borg chic so if oh, you've really you wanted go. to look like yeah. a 1980s super villain uh, <laughs> yeah. conglomerate this is definitely the look to go for i have 80s are like 2060 uh, like you know when we wow. start chopping off our legs to put on robot legs because we run faster <laughs> But yeah, it's a it's that's definitely a very... the perfect fashion accessory for Matthew Gates. I will say that it's just spot on, Matthew. I think I, I in my head envision you in those because I think one of maybe it's like your LinkedIn or one of your profiles, Twitter or Instagram for a while. That might have been your profile photo is you wearing those like looking at a plant. So yes, for a long time I've associated you with using those. And it's a very interesting and uh, useful thing. I'm surprised more people don't actually implement it. I almost see nobody else rocking them. So it's not like, you know, it's... Oh, I'm going to get a link from Matthew after the show here. I mean, I need to get me some of them. For sure. And, yeah, there are other ones out there, but like they are hands-free lenses, uh, headgear like that. And they have sometimes even like the lenses that like flick in and flick out. Uh, but to be honest, I just feel like they're poorly made and they don't like, they don't um, tighten around your head very well. 
uh, speaking from personal experience, but also some other people that I've talked to. So these are great for that band and I'll stop talking about it. But if you're curious, I've posted about this and I have an equipment video on my YouTube channel uh, where I go over uh, various things that I use in IPM context. So if you are curious, I will, uh, I'll put that in the chat. That was a good video. Even like the pants surprised me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the pants. <laughs> Matthew, I might more useful than you think. Sidetracked in chat, but what were the magnifications you could achieve with the ones that you have right now? These were um, uh, 10x, 15x. I think there's 10, 15, 20, and 25. I forget. Okay. It might just be 10, 15, 25, but the 25 for sure. And I almost always just default to that. It's not. Um, it's you don't not need like much a, more. Yeah. yeah. And also, um, the yeah, like 100 times, man. If I'm looking for like <laughs> a fucking russet mite or something, I want 100 times. Yeah, but yeah, the, you can field have of, the, the field of magnification is so small when you get into the higher magnifications that it uh, it is a pain in the ass to be mobile. Like, and try and look on a leaf. Like, if it's you not in a microscope, right. you know, microscope is easier. Yeah. And yeah. Since you bring it up, that those stereoscopes I got, I I use them constantly too. That's a good one too. But I I do love those, Matthew. Yeah, that is a really excellent point. Yeah, the, your field of vision just does uh, shrink um significantly so it's really a matter of like you guys were saying like holding a leaflet or something you know moving your head down and like you'll get you'll figure out pretty easily the objective and so you can like kind of move your you can move your neck like you would move the objective of a microscope and uh have a pretty stable view uh, they're awesome to be honest they're the best i was just checking trichomes last night and having you use some of the techniques i talked about on the show i think like a week or two ago but uh, it kind of reminds me of the ones that you were talking about where you could like flip between like 10, 25, 30 or whatever. Kind of like the optometrist when you go to get your eyes checked. They're like, is it number one or two? Three or yes, four? That's exactly like, that sort Fuck. of movement. <laughs> I, I never know. I, I have used to have really bad eyes. Um, but anyway, I digress. Getting back to the equipment topic. One that I'll mention that um, not many people need or would use, but it came in handy when I was setting up here just for... Uh, stealth reasons and, and not wanting to be found out. It's kind of a combination. I think most people run a carbon filter, but I'll add on top of that a uh, silencer for the fan. It's just basically a metal tube that the exhaust fan attaches to and it blows the air out through there. And instead of, you know, making kind of the loud noise that you'll hear from an exhaust fan, it just quiets that. And for, I live in a really condensed packed neighborhood and a lot of the people around here probably use and enjoy cannabis. So I didn't want to draw attention to the fact that I'm cultivating it. Um, and we have kids in the neighborhood too. So I didn't want to like have anybody want to come break in or, you know, be more curious than they need to be. And uh, shout out to Rasta Jeff from the grow from your heart podcast. He always talks about before you even start to grow, you got to think about some of the stuff like security, whether you're in a legal state or an illegal state, having a carbon filter to cover up your smell, uh, just so you don't kind of put that mark out there because you never really know who's around and you don't want to draw negative attention. Um, I know <laughs> I won't get into personal experiences, but too many people who haven't taken security seriously enough, who've had extremely negative consequences. And I'll leave it at that. But I found that it is really affordable. I think it was like only like 20 or 30 bucks. And it makes it so that right next to the exhaust fan, you can hardly even hear it. And there's ways that you can even uh, improve. Like um, I had a someone who really needed extra stealth and they like built a cardboard box around the outside of their kind of cage fan and they put like a pillow or something to soften it up so the rattling was less 
and they made it so there was actually like no sound at all outside the room that it was in so it was undetectable and less you open it was like down in their basement where they could lock a door and get it out of the way and i think for people that need that it is a nice ability to have and it's not gonna break your bank but uh it does dual purpose you got covering the smell and covering up the noise which are two ways that you can kind of easily draw attention to yourself without thinking about it because you're around it all the time you're like oh it's just like a fan running no one's gonna think anything of it but sometimes people <laughs> might be more savvy than you're aware so it's always good to cover your tracks if you can and uh with that said i'll, I'll add one more on the uh, a second to spartan grown city pickers i've praised them about a billion times but the uh earth box i've recommended so many people the freaking earth box even the earth box junior i just saw somebody finish uh, their second harvest ever and they said they tripled their harvest from their pots yeah. so i get the same kind of stories man i'm just like Hey, I'm just out here shouting from the rooftops and I'm hoping this shit sticks because especially for a new grower, it makes shit so fucking easy. I haven't found somebody who's had a negative experience yet. And not to say that it's not possible. You do have to set it up properly. But if you need help, I'd be happy to guide you. Uh, I'd say we have some pretty tried and true recipes. And God, there's a lot of people having successes with them. Not even to like gloat myself, but look at like Cape Cod Lori. Look at Cheddar Bob. Look at Spartan Grown. I mean, there's a lot of people that are growing like the cape cod lori I, I grow with earth boxes in a tiny little tent she's growing outside on her deck and her plants are freaking massive they're like double or triple my size so i'm like well i know it's gonna have enough to feed my plant if you know as long as i make the soil links decent and uh they grow like crazy um the harvest i'm about to have with this velvet punch f3 they're one of the plants that's starting to get that kind of gorilla glue flop where the buds are just so fat uh i should have probably cut off one of these auxiliary shoots i say normally if it's smaller than my pinky i won't leave it this one is like maybe two toothpicks if you combine them together. It's okay. a real thin stalk, but the bud is like fat. It's chunky. So like yeah. the bud went up one day and then like the next day it was like completely over. And there's a, <laughs> not like a super cropped knuckle, but it's just like the weakest looking thing. So I grabbed that like green soft wire and uh, made a little hook out of it and pulled it into the corner yeah. of the tent. And that kind of redirected the plant. And now most of it is able to support itself, but yeah, it's definitely not a bad problem to have bud so fat that they can't support <laughs> their own weight. I won't complain too much. Definitely not. So on the, I'm having a, I'm having a great result with, um, so with the sip container, but then with Brandon's nutrient, the uh, the carbon based or whatever it's called, the and humate or K humate. Yeah, the humate. Yeah, and I'm actually finding that I have to back off on on using as, as much as I have it. I was doing every two weeks, too fucking much. These things that are getting close to finish are way too green right now. So, and everything is bank. Like, I don't think that they're um finishing like they're making it finish early or anything like that and i don't think that it's um making it you know grow any more vigorous i would say but it just like packs on more like everything is wider everything is uh, i don't know how to say it just fattened up all my buds and i don't know it, it makes sense though if it's if it's if it's carbon if it's able to get more carbon in this way then it makes sense that to be able to put on more biomass you ever see the organics alive side by side build the soil did where he like fed the organics alive it's like a or similar kind I didn't of see that one though so it was pretty similar situation i think he did like his uh you know build a bloom whatever blend like his hottest best soil and like pretty large pots and then the one next to it he did a similar thing but then he was amending it or uh, supplementing it with the organics alive and you could see they were like a little frostier and a little bit fatter so I do think that when you provide 
you might think that you're providing everything. Like the, the one on the right looked really good, like eight out of 10, nine out of 10, maybe. And the one on the left was like a 10 out of 10. It was just like everything well, like, and more. It's also like uh, what I call bottled organics. You know what I mean? It is, it's fucking chelated. And so these nutrients are available. So yeah, I might have, pick your nutrient, whatever. I might have magnesium in my soil, but maybe 50% available magnesium. And so I'm making up that extra 50% when I do feed it with, um, with something that's been chelated, something that's already available. So I think that's where the, it, it just like covers the, it covers the, you know, the barrel and the slots. It kind of evens them all out for you and lets you kind of start back at square one. I think. Or just raises them all up that little bit higher. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It raises them all up for sure. I think, uh, there's another brand foop that's like fish poop. They make a, uh-huh. a brand of organic nutrients. There's BioBiz. And uh, we just had uh, our buddy, uh, the dog doctor came on. I can't remember which one he was doing nutrient pellets from Aptus Nutrients. So there's uh, a lot of really interesting options out there now. And I guess we've talked about some great ones or good ones that we've uh, enjoyed. Can anybody think of something maybe that they regret purchasing like uh, equipment? They're like, damn, I really shouldn't have gotten that. That that wasn't as uh, good as I expected. Or maybe I spent too much on that and I could have gotten away with the cheaper one. I'm going to jump first too, just to make it easy on me, be the first one. <laughs> I'm going to say the, I'm going to call them out turbo cloners. I fucking hate the turbo cloner. And I bought two of the damn things. I bought one early on with me first, like the first year of me trying to grow. And uh, I lost more than I ever rooted in it. And then, well, the, not true. The first run was perfect, but then the, the, each successive run, they're terrible. So, it's very, very heat. I know what the issues were. So then I figured, okay, I know what the issues are. And, and years later, I tried another one. And uh, yeah, slightly better success, but still not better than me using root riot cubes. And so then recently, I've tried a DWC style oxycloner, I think it was called. And it's way the fuck better. Way, and I'm in love with that thing. So I'm going to put turbo cloner on Spartan's shit list. That's what I don't like, the turbo cloner. Yeah. I'll take a second on the oxy cloner. I do like the oxy cloner. I'd say it's affordable compared to a lot of them. It was actually the lowest entry point that I could find of any of the cloners by a pretty long shot. I think it was like half or three times as cheap as some of the other options I was looking at. And What's it the worked. difference? Sorry. So the, the oxycloner is when you put your cuts in the collars, they hang into the water like a DWC situation. And then there's a little air stone in there and also a venturi pump to keep the water oxygenated and moving. Whereas your turbo cloner is a, a vat of water with a manifold in it, a pump with a manifold in it. And that pump spray, it pump pushes water through the manifold and it sprays water onto the uh onto the bottom of the uh cuttings that are dangling so they're not really submerged in the water and then um so why that doesn't work for me is that pump always eventually would heat up the fucking water so warm that you're going to run into issues so you either change the water a lot try to put fucking ice in the water try to put it down on a cold surface there's all kinds of tricks but like why do we have to do all that bullshit (laughs) you know um, the oxycloner basically takes the old school way of, I'm going to take a cutting, put it in a glass of water and change the water every couple of days until it roots and just automated it by putting fucking airstone in there and that ventrally pump. 
So even yeah, when the power so goes out, you're not like the, the difference between the two when the power goes out is turbo cloner. You are fucked within like a minute. Oxycloner, you got some time. You're like you're like cuttings in water at that point. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Yes. Yeah, one's a, a aero cloner and one's a hydro right. cloner, right? I mean, aero cloners have some advantages, but they have a lot of of drawbacks. It, the pump heating up the water is one and the emitters getting clogged and then not spraying reliably is another big drawback to this. Oh, thank you for bringing that up. That's another one that pissed me off. Yeah. So you need to filter the water really well. That's being sort of cycled through there to, to keep it usually running really wet water too. Um, but yeah, it does depend on sort of what point of the market you're in. There's really good sort of aero cloners, but they're more expensive than the turbo cloner. So this is just an example from a run that I did with my oxycloner. This is when I was using all the stock. You could see there's like a flat airstone and then like a venturi pump. So this was my uh, one of my first few runs with it. I think it might have even been my first one, but it definitely worked. Oh, here's a better, the actual rooted clones. You could see nice healthy roots there that's the blue collars i actually have the permaclone collars now and um i do like that you can sterilize them a little bit more easily so um they i think they run like a buck a collar or something like that so or maybe two bucks so it's like 40 bucks or something to replace all 20 of the oxyclone but in my opinion i think that was again like one of those qualities cheaper in the long run things i had my best results the first few times with the oxyclone and then i was still having success i used like a dishwashing thing and i think maybe the abrasive like brillo that i used probably made the pores a little bit wider and that might have made it more susceptible to getting bad bacteria in there i thought it was gonna you know get a deeper clean or whatever uh, but i got progressively worse roots until i switched to the permaclone and now it's just like every time just i don't clone that often but when i do i'm just like well that was easy and easy to clean one of my biggest things was they're just a pain in the butt to clean like uh noah said i think he uses a turbo clone or that style but he runs like bleach through it and has to do that every run otherwise the emitters will start to clog up and if you put a little bit too much nutrient in there and that you know salty you know nutrient content starts to clog up one of those emitters it can screw you over and like spartan said if the power goes out it can be a little bit of a pain in the butt so i can see why you're not a big fan of that so tao is there any uh technology or equipment out there that you've uh, tried out that you haven't been a big fan of well i had one of those yeah it was like um the the turbo cloner with the manifold and the spray and um it worked pretty good but i hated trying to put those water roots into soil which is the only part i didn't like because i mean i was successful at cloning i just figured that would be easier so that was one of the reasons i only used it once and then i gave brought it back and i said yeah i'm not gonna use this anymore you want to give me some money for it and, and one of the dudes at the hydro store brought it back for me but um other than that i can't think of anything i try and research so that i don't do stupid purchases or take stupid medications um due diligence is not just for purchases people but um i won't go further than that um so Tao, are you still using crystals man crystals baby as long as it doesn't hurt my 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 plants they're in there now like i'll be transplanting because at first i was just going to try and keep them keep, you know like how i was i say i keep the half of the bucket as like i just scrape off the top when i transplant but oh, yeah yeah i would put crystals in a whole bunch of those now it's just throughout my soil because i reuse it all the time i'll be putting stuff in and i'll just find them but um 
Shit, I forgot what I was going to say now. <laughs> You're talking about equipment that didn't work out that maybe you didn't like. Yeah, most. I mean, everything. Like I said, yeah. If you research and what what is better than even researching is knowing someone who has the product and asking them if it's any good or not. You know, and and uh, coming here every Sunday and listen to us talk about as Spartan will know to tell you not to get that turbo cloner. You know, so <laughs> oh, the turbo cloner with the spray it wasn't even either. Like that was I, I saw. It, it wasn't even so they'd be like one yeah that just totally directional sprayers you can get different yeah, directional sprayers to get, yeah yeah but, yeah, but I mean, there's sure. tricks to it for sure i mean mm -hmm. there's some great there's some great tips coming up in chat too but it's like that's the the very that's my very point you having to write a paragraph on how you have to get it operational it means right <laughs> you know it means it's not for me. when there's manufacturer error those little plastic tips are very small and if there's a little bit off or like the plastic is chipped or bent in it's not going to spray as well or as evenly so or you can yeah. while you're installing it or moving stuff around you could bump it or nick it or damage it so I there think this are a is, lot yeah i think this is kind of related to the the topic here jack and that it, there's some products that you just shouldn't try to get bargains on or get like the cheap model of and mm -hmm. i would say aeroponic cloners is definitely among them um if you're gonna go with that yeah you kind of need like you're talking about like well-manufactured stuff that that's at fine tolerances that you know is a well put together system and if they're selling it to you for like 79.99 on amazon or whatever it's probably not what you're getting and you're gonna run into problems with it pretty quickly um there's other products in your grow that I think you can certainly get away with, you know, getting like the, the bargain units. You know, the other thing, and this often comes up with growers, which is like EC meters and pH meters. Like I'm fine with you getting the cheapest EC meter that you can find. Um, it's really simple technology and you can get them for like $7.99 sometimes. Go ahead and get that one. It might not last forever, but it'll be reasonably accurate as long as it is. But pH meters... Man, I would I would invest more in in a pH meter than in your EC meter. Um, you get a, the cheapest pH meter, it it might be good for a week or two, um, and and then it's going to be sort of unreliable. Um, so you know that's its own skill in growing. That's one of the things we we try to sort of talk about is like, you know, where can you pinch your pennies and where should you save up to buy something that's a little bit more expensive, but with aeroponic cloners in particular um this is something you got to start with like what's your budget for this and if your budget's like you know 60 bucks then then go a different route because you're not going to be able to get sort of a reliable aeroponic cloner for for that budget i've seen a really cool technique used to even sprout seeds recently but i've also seen people make their own um air, like dwc cloner where they take like a pool noodle or some sort of sponge or foam and then they'll put it in a tupperware container and then they cut circles in the lid of the tupperware and then they have an air stone they just put the air stone or not air stone air pump with the hose directly into the water that provides oxygen and that little uh pool noodle it acts basically like one of the uh collars for cheaper i was surprised but somebody got 100 percent germination sprouting their seeds they had like a 50 uh tray full of just like purple you know whatever foam pool noodle cut up into little things that they poke a little hole into and sprouted seeds in there and they were also able to uh root clones in that same medium. So that's super cheap home grow on the budget. And um, like the oxy cloner, it can Dude, work. I swear to God, I'm not, I'm not, I wish I fucking was a representative form, but I swear to God, I'm, I have city water. So that's helping me. I'm sure with the, the chlorine in the water, but 
I'm literally just using tap water and switching it out once a week. That's what I do water. as well. And I stopped using the airstone in the thing and the air pump in the thing. I have an exterior air pump now that I put two hoses in each corner. So instead of a 20 site, I basically have an 18 site. Uh, but you can actually double up your clones. So it's like a 36 site and they'll clone, they'll root just fine with two in the same collar. But with that said, not having to clean the airstone or the air pump every time that was in the water because that air pump in the water has like slime wants to build up the second it gets warm you're gonna have to bleach that you're gonna have to take it apart and clean the every little nook and cranny versus you can just cut off the piece of hose and that same brand that i talked about earlier um permaclone collar makes a sanitizable tube so i got the little roll of tube whenever i ordered the um, collars that instead of having to cut it off and basically throw away you know a few inches of hose every single grow um i can just you know, sanitize that tube as I sanitize the collars and reuse it. So a little less damage to the environment and helps with success, not getting a bad bacteria as molds and things like that accidentally exposed to your plants and then carrying it throughout your grow, which can be disastrous, unfortunately, but it can happen to the best of us. So I'm uh, curious, Matthew, on the IPM side or grow side of things, is there any equipment that you could think of that maybe you've tried in the past or made a big investment on that you felt like wasn't successful or you weren't happy with? Yeah, um, I was uh, working with some people who they were using um, hypochlorous acid and they were using that to, honestly, actually I think that this particular compound that they were using in the system actually I think does work pretty well. This also came from a, a Dutch company, by the way, but um, the problem for them, the reason why it didn't work out was, was that uh, it took a lot of maintenance. I, I guess that's at a commercial level. I should probably think more home grow. Um, let me think here for a moment. I don't, uh, I'm pretty like cautious when it comes to like buying equipment in general. I like, to, I like to test things. I do like interesting new gear and things like that, but I'm pretty parsimonious because I, for exactly this reason, like there are things out there that purportedly work or what's the margin. I really want to know if that's going to be relevant to me or not. Um, I mean, I'll, I, I definitely have talked about how, uh, you know, tracking bricks and things like that hasn't been as helpful as some have purported online. Um, there is that, uh, <laughs> a few years ago that ran around like gospel and the organic still does. Community. I mean, in certain places. Yeah. But I think now more so it's at least being challenged or there's a intellectual debate and discussion that might be happening on both sides where for a long time, it just kind of went unchallenged. Oh, if your bricks is over 14, your plants are immune to pests. And they would just, I, I've heard that repeated over and over. And um, now I've seen plants that have like 20 plus bricks get attacked. So um, I, I know what to believe. And I, I'd look at the science and the experience from the people that specialize in that. And I appreciate that you actually try to do your best to put out fair and informed content to the people so that they can best protect their garden and not rely on that stuff because imagine your bricks is really high and you're still dealing with pests and you're like, Hey, what the heck's going on? Uh, it's better to actually know what the pests are capable of. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. I can't think of anything very specific um, at the moment. So I'll pass. If I think of something, I'm going to put I'll you on the spot. Somebody. Yeah. <laughs> so what's, what's a, um, a predator that people think is a good predator to use, but actually turns out to be ineffective most times. If, if uh, you can think of one, because I feel like I have maybe at least one in my head, but um, I'd love are to you going to say lady beetles? 
that was going to be one or even the praying mantis. I think sometimes yeah. people overly rely on it. They buy a bunch and then they're disappointed to not have, oh, there's 500 eggs or 200 eggs. And they only end up with like three or four because they eat each other and kill each other. They're often, I don't know. Well, well, you know me very well. Um, so yeah, actually, that's a, that's a great point. It's always relevant to sort of mention this because people ask this all the time. In fact, on my uh, Instagram, I did a post about spider mites and I had several people commented, release the ladybugs. I'm like, no, don't do that. Don't waste your money. So yeah, so not that lady beetles can't be effective um, for like aphids, for example, but like they're destructively harvested a lot of the times and some species are not great for the environment, like the harlequin lady beetle. Um, so for those who are concerned about actually not messing up their environment, definitely look those up and look up how they are harvested and that kind of stuff. It's very bad. You should be informed. Um, well, and if that's not enough to uh, dissuade you, they can bite you, which yes. can be a pain in the ass and literally like pain. Um, and some person just thought they were going to be funny on TikTok and they were going to do like, I, I think it was like the million ladybug march or something. And they were going to let out a million ladybugs and they were trying oh, to get no. people to donate. And they started doing this and they actually got the attention of the local, I believe, ecology, and whatever, environmental agencies. And this person, I believe, did jail time or got like oh, very goodness. heavy fines. Uh, wow. They had deported, I think, is what the case ended up being. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Back to, uh, I think they're of Cuban what descent. What state was this? Do you know offhand? Uh, I can't remember exactly what state it was in, but I do think that they were a, a Cuban-American national. But some people, uh, maybe maybe look into that claim a little bit more. But yeah, I don't know. I, I watched the stream of TikToks. And not to say that everything you see on the internet is true. Uh, you should probably do a lot more <laughs> research into that. <laughs> but I would not suggest uh, introducing any foreign species, ladybug or otherwise, into any area at mass number just for attention or clout because especially if you're putting it on the internet you might be committing a crime on the internet which can be traced back to you and you can be uh, held accountable for it so keep that in mind yeah or you might be like the cause of a local plague or something yes I mean, seriously you know so yeah i i'll say this about also the mantises um so like uh yeah that's another one because a lot of times people buy the chinese man mantis um i think that stagmo mantis is it sinensis? I don't actually remember. Um, I'm pretty sure it's stagmomantis though, genus. But anyways, the point being is that uh, the um, the Chinese mantis is an invasive here. It's natural. I guess you could make arguments that's naturalized here. It's definitely established in a lot of places. Um, I see it all the time when I go up in the desert and uh, at gas stations and stuff where the, when it's like when it's nighttime and the lights are, br are blur bright. But people will buy these mantises and think that they're going to attack their pests. But like the key thing, if you take nothing away from my um, monologue here, it's that these mantises will not go after most pests that re you really care about because one, they're too small. Spider mites, broad mites, russet mites. Um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on other ones <laughs> at the moment just at this point. But there's a ton of the really, really big noxious um like insects and mites and things like this are very tiny and even when the mantises are very small as nymphs they're not really going to go after them i have seen that i've even video recorded and shared uh little praying mantis nymphs eating like mold mites and predatory mites actually you know because they are small enough and they can register them and they do um use their raptorial claws and, and grab some but as soon as they get a little bit bigger they're not going to go after anything like that anyways. They're, they're, if they're going to eat anything, they'll eat like a honeybee or like a, 
maybe a caterpillar or something. You eat each um, other. So I tell everybody. Or each buy, other. <laughs> so you buy those mantis, you're buying one. You're buying one per fucking pod because they're gonna eat <laughs> each other until there's one left. Yeah, it's just it's just not a good investment of, of your time and energy. And like uh, Dr. Coco said, and you said, Jack, it can be a, a really, really big problem ecologically. And there's a lot of animals that we already have that can kind of be called that as well. I love cats, but they're, they've had some problems. <laughs> they've killed a lot of animals in uh, sensitive locations. And I can't really be uh, con condoning that. Yeah, definitely. I have cats, but I keep them indoor because I've seen the statistics and they're one of the highest killer, like millions of birds, rodents, everything. They, they throw off the balance. Uh, I was, I'm from Ohio and I saw like, even if deer get out of balance, like what they can do to the populations of like the rabbits and other things, and even like interfering with human life, they'll start running into the roads and causing fatal accidents. And uh, so keeping the populations at the right levels is important. And uh, there's smarter people out there than myself who are aware of the best ways of doing that, but it's important to keep in mind, so. I just wanna say one last thing before we go on is that's that a lot of biocontrols out there are used kind of uh, inundatively kind of in large amounts, but uh, a lot of research and approvals go into trying to find out whether the biocontrol is, should be uh, deployed in a place that it is. Uh, there's even some here in North America that we don't use that are available in Europe because uh, authorities are not totally sure that it will, that some of those wouldn't um, either establish in a way that we don't want or, or attack things that are non-target organisms that are native here. Um, so there's a lot that goes into sort of making that okay. So if you are considering using certain biocontrol agents, know that there's quite a ton of, of research that goes into exactly that kind of thing to make sure it doesn't have the sort of negative effect as much as possible. And you should always be mitigating it yourself um, by targeting and and uh, maybe not being so like broad spectrum about how you how you apply it. Also, they're kind of expensive, so I feel like people aren't really doing that too much. You want to be efficient. So I feel like we've uh, maybe gone through, does anybody have any other uh, equipment that they didn't enjoy their uh, money being spent on before we go into the second half of the show where we're gonna talk a little bit about plant training? I mean, I see other people spending money on equipment that I think is wasting their money quite frequently. Fortunately, I haven't done it myself in a while. Um, I bought some fans that didn't turn out to work as well as advertised but um, you didn't move air enough or, or they just broke down man be careful with oscillating fans for your grow tent i would just say that as a general rule and question whether you really need an oscillating fan for your grow tent um especially the clip-on ones yeah fixed position fans like in a little grow tent are probably going to do just a perfectly adequate job of of moving the air that you need to move um but it's kind of rare, I think, to to come across a a good sort of oscillating fan for a grow tent that will actually last. Um, because we run them like you know twenty four hours a day, seven days a week for months at a time, um, and a lot of the they're just not made for that. 
That's actually a really good point. And also like the excess energy consumption. I don't know if it's going to be a ton, but it all adds up. And no need to add something with like multiple failure points if you don't need them. I think We're that's a pretty common um, like miscalculation people make. I'd say worse so than that is the fire hazard risk. I've seen a few either start to smoke or a couple actually caught fire. And a brand yeah. that I know and love, Vivo Sean, I hate to call them out. I had two or three of their oscillating fans and they all broke. Uh, they all put out a ton of wind actually for their size. I think they were only like four or six inch uh, clip fans. But I learned the hard way, especially if you're in a tent where you have negative pressure, where the walls are being sucked in a little bit. Exactly. Fan is oscillating and it hits that wall that's being sucked up against it. It's kinking that neck and it's straining the tiny little motor in there. And uh, not to get into where those motors are made or the quality of them, but they, I'll say this, are not the highest of quality and they do burn out, break. And fortunately for me, mine just broke. So they became a non-oscillating fan. So I got lucky. But I right. saw some people who they started to smoke and literally catch on fire. And thankfully they didn't burn down the entire house or, you know, whatever, but to have a fire in your grow, that's like scary as hell. And we never, ever want to have that. So yeah, what happens they have, they have plastic gears and the gears start to like break down through time until they're just rubbing against each other. And then you just got like these sharp plastic edges that are rubbing against each other back and forth and heating up in friction and can start a fire. Yeah, that's, they do make these really badass fucking fire extinguishers, though, that you can just hang on the wall near these devices that once it gets to a certain temperature, they just explode. It's like a ball. Yeah. There's a number on your uh, cannabis harvest there. Oh, that, your, your harvest is done <laughs> at that point, but at least your house isn't burnt down. Yeah, yeah right. But just go with a non-oscillating fan. How about that? If you're in a grow tent, like, really, you don't need an oscillating fan. Just get a couple of them, put them on opposite corners or whatever, blow it across. So you're going to be fine. Nice. Um, a failed deadly uh, uh, anti-fire device. I like it. You don't want to have to trust your life with a sub $100 piece of equipment. And right. uh, I'll say that, like Doc mentioned, if you have just a non-oscillating clip fans in opposite corners, you can kind of set up like a, a racetrack or like a circulation of airflow around your room. I will say the tower fans that you can put on your floor that oscillate back and forth. I've had several of those for like my home and used uh, the, even the smaller versions um, within a, a small tent and had good luck with those and not having them burn out. I think that then they're built a little bit more solid and the way that you can place it, it's not going to be clipped to a fence, like a post of the tent that's getting uh, interference. So, but even then, I think after years, eventually they'll break and then you can just use it as a stagnant thing. But the, the risk of fire is uh, something that, I would look into any of your gear. Like you might look at an Amazon post and see 4.5 stars, 3000 reviews. But then if you like click on it and you go to one star, there's like 20 people who are like, this shit caught on fire. And <laughs> that's not worth it. No, I just wanted to say, I saw this, um, uh, a louver that's like actually a part of the fan attached to the fan and the louver spins. And the way the, the, the things are slanted, it kind of like oscillates the wind around in different directions, even though it's a stationary fan, the louver spins and it's not motorized. It's just the, the force of the wind that makes it spin and blows the wind around more. I don't have one, but it seemed like a great idea. I was going to say, I've seen 3d printed versions where instead of a oscillating fan, you just take your standard clip fan and like the people 3d print something that it hangs the fan into like a slot 
And like you're talking about the power of the actual fan itself, just moving around is enough to make it within this little channel. It blows to one side, hits the wall, and then it bumps to that, and then it swings itself back and then hits another wall where it's not a mechanical thing. It's just sitting in a kind of a cutout. But I would wonder. Um, right, right. I sort of suspect that if you're this concerned about air movement, like a, just this fixed fan on the corner of your tent isn't going to do it for you it's because you probably need to to like address some humidity or heat issues also like you know if you're really depending on like a steady breeze against all of your buds to keep them from getting you know mold or something um so i, I don't know Think it ties it well into our next topic yeah, which yeah. is maybe uh reduce the plant count take one plant out or change how you manage your plant we could get into some plant training and grow techniques which might allow you to run more plants in the same amount of space by doing something that i know doc isn't the biggest fan of but you see it at every single commercial grow which is de-leafing it to an extent where you can pack more <laughs> that's plants a in there. sly ass underhanded compliment there yeah no i don't i don't mind i don't i don't mind cutting leaves off jack please don't don't most commercial growths don't do anything that i think is is really inappropriate so i understand why they're cutting off leaves at certain points it was more for <laughs> like i know mitten canico actually goes pretty hard and spartan's no longer there so i could take some jabs at them especially because they work with the mcma and, and screw the mcma and it's interesting to see that they go pretty much full schwa's. It almost looks like you guys strip it down to basically the only a few nodes left on each plant. No, it's not quite that hard. They uh, they would leave. Uh, they would still leave some of the smaller leaves on there. They but for sure every big fan leaf comes off for sure. And then uh, yeah, there's probably about five to six nodes left on every branch. I would say. I just still I was... see it too too frequently that uh, not to bring it up. In, in the community, I see some people, whether it's a home grow or a commercial grow, that strip it down to, it looks like a vine. There's literally just the the stems. Oh, yeah. GML yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we, everybody sees that. Yeah, for sure. I was going to say that uh, that was that was the response to Tao, that paper that you sent me. Um, right. About, yeah, about the, uh, the physical damage affecting the sugar production, increasing the sugar production in plants, but also defense compounds and that sort of a thing i had seen other yeah. research related to this but like yeah so people were like so if i just if i cut you know if i aggressively cut the leaves from my plants is that the same thing and it's like no because like the the cells that are getting the damage or are experiencing the damage that, are, that aren't removed they're they're the ones making that um that signaling and, yeah yeah exactly so if you cut like the whole leaf off none of that really happens, happens. sort of exactly. yeah, yeah. yeah. So just another reason not to do that, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> They're asking in chat, can someone touch on applying beneficial nematodes? The only thing I really, I mean, I just kind of follow the directions that they, they usually send along with them. And it's, it's usually you take, take whatever you've got and you divide that in half, put half in the fridge, and then you apply the other half as a root drench. Um, usually if it's a situation where you're, you're feeding and you're, you're pHing the water. I would do all that first and then add them last. Don't don't adjust pH after that and then just water them in. That's how I used to do it. And then after that first application, wait a week and then use that other or two weeks. A lot of people will wait two. We were getting them every week, so we had the luxury of just using once a week applications. 
I think that's solid advice. Yeah, there are some um some people will like, I don't know if it's exactly what you're saying, Spartan, but like sometimes people will apply, they'll have like a package, but it's like very obviously like a single package that's like meant to be like it'll like like you say on the on the instructions would be like use all of this amount. Um and then people will store it properly and it like doesn't work and they're like, what's going on? And it's like they aren't following the instructions. Honestly, I agree with you. Like there's not a lot of like, there's a little bit of art to that to it, but like it's pretty self-explanatory. It's pretty, pretty uh, easy to, to do. You just put it in the water and make sure it's agitated. And then, um, and then you apply it. Make sure you don't have like a grating on whatever the uh, handle to the thing you're applying is. So you don't okay, destroy asking, them. Okay, now I have a different question. Then you should have yeah. moist soil, right? So that they don't die or sound like, like they're, doing, soil. they're not doing a root trench. They're in a sprayer. So oh. That's what I said. Like a foliar spray. Saying the sprayer might be too damaging if you're applying them through, depending on the head or the nozzle, micron size. But spraying them on the leaves, nematodes don't hang out on the leaves, do they? They don't. But there are some applications where people apply them in foliage for like thrips. Pupae is one application I've read about. I didn't know that. But it's not. It's it's not very. But you you make a great point. It's it's not something I see replicated a lot and. Um, maybe in pests that I'm not familiar with, which is definitely possible. Like I could see maybe like a beetle grub or maybe uh, a caterpillar larvae that shelter in. Uh, uh, says no, he's spraying. He's spraying them onto, onto the, the soil. soil. Oh, okay. Like, okay. I just wouldn't spray it. Yeah, I would water. say take the take the nozzle off of the spray if you can, and it would just be like a quarter inch stream of water, which you could, you know, still get it across all the soil without, um, like, yeah. But I, I believe I use a sprayer, I think, and I, it might, they should say on the directions if it's safe to use a sprayer. But yeah, so I don't know, but that's, I, some, I, that's the way I water with some of my spots. I, you know, without, I take the sprayer right off and this way I can reach into the back corner and just give plants water when I want and use a pump sprayer. The, uh, there's a bunch of different types of nematodes too. So I'd imagine true. there's gotta be a variety of sizes. That might some might be okay to be sprayed and some might not handle it as well. Yeah, and I just want to say that one of the big disadvantages and the reason why uh, you wouldn't want to apply it fully early is, of course, they're not uh, they're not designed for that environment, but um, they'll desiccate really quickly. So I think even in the cases where people do that foliar spray, um, I think it's like it's very niche. It's like for situations where. Like maybe it's like at night or something, or it's dark, or you only, or you have like a, a very specific like pest that you're going after a certain life stage, usually one that's immobile, if I remember correctly. I'll put like a link to something related to this in the chat if people are curious. So getting a little bit back to the uh, plant training topic, I want to pass it back to Doc because I wasn't trying to throw you under the bus there earlier, but I do like the concept earlier that we were talking about because many of us are in small spaces, whether it's a tent or a grow room where yeah. maybe our heat is getting a little bit high, ventilation is a little bit strained, airflow might be starting to get a little bit taxed. Maybe we didn't clean off the fans between runs and they're starting to build up dirt and dust and they're not just pushing as much air as they used to, or they're right. just getting old. Um, but with that said, what would you kind of, how would you go about um, handling getting less humidity and less heat in there? Uh, would you attack it with less, the, either less well, plants less or heat? training? Um humidity yeah no there's definitely some training things i mean i I lollipop my plants too i mean 
to to cut off the bottom leaves that are fully shaded out when all they're basically doing is transpiring. Um, if there's not a humidity problem or if the humidity is sort of low where I'd want it to be, I'll leave those leaves on longer. Um, but there is certainly some training involved there. It, you know, when you're setting up a commercial space, you think about the the transpiration potential of your canopy space, um, you know, on an hour by hour basis, you calculate the, the drop in temperature when the lights go off and, and figure out how much water you're going to have to remove from that space. Um, so if you're in a commercial space and you find that you're having to do plant training different than how you would otherwise want to do to manage climate, somebody's cut some budgets on some, you know, CapEx costs on their budget in terms of the equipment that they put in there um, and the capacity of it to, to sort of maintain the climate that you want. Because, you know, you're trying to, to build in a, a surplus. So I don't actually think that, that a lot of commercial facilities find themselves sort of pushed into those positions unless they're a little bit undercapitalized. But home growers are almost always undercapitalized in this regard. Um, humidity, increase air movement if you can. Again, that's why I brought up when, you know, you guys must be dealing with humidity issues if you're so worried about the air movement inside the tent, um, air flow through the tent. Um, you can try to do some tricks, you know, if you can draw in cooler air, um, it will have less moisture in it. And as it heats up in, in the grow tent, um, it, it'll dry out essentially. Um, so I've, I've helped some growers that live in pretty moist, but relatively cool environments, like intake air from their basements, even though it's, it's higher humidity down there, it's so much cooler that as that air heats up in the grow tent, the, the absolute amount of moisture is less. So the relative humidity is lower. Um, you know, and then air conditioning, um, Air conditioning for heat, air conditioning can also be used to, to manage your climate, but air conditioning is expensive. Um, and so if you can't invest in more equipment by using air conditioning and you're dealing with a heat problem, you probably got to do use less equipment. I mean, the heat is being generated primarily by your grow light and you may have to run a, at a lower light level, put less power into that tent um you know a lot of growers think that they can like remove a lot of heat from the light by removing the driver that's like usually not more than seven percent of the total heat that your lights contributing comes off the driver itself um but if you dim it down to 80 percent, you know you've you've dropped 20 percent of the heat out of that tent from that light at least um so you can think about things like that these are all sort of compromises um, if you can keep a lot of air moving through your tent with good air movement and healthy plants, um, you should be able to operate at a reasonably high temperature. But yeah, Matthew will, will start snapping because you're going to run into some problems with, with getting big flowers and getting mold and other issues if your humidity is too high. Um, a victim of excellent growth success, honestly. It's kind of unfortunate. Yeah, too fat yeah, bud. Exactly. It's almost like every time you see like the biggest, fattest ones, you're almost like, oh, next time I'm going to top that a few more times because when it gets too fat, you're going to get a little bit of bud rot, botrytis, 
p.m. something goes on. Oh, yeah. If it. you get it, it's always in the best part of the best bud in your entire grow, right? It's like always in the thickest part of the best cola or whatever. Um, yeah. <laughs> so and that, that's a, a steep price to pay. But, you know, in the cheap home grow sense, and this is why I don't grow in July and August. You know, I don't have flowering plants in July and August, usually at least. Um, because in order to maintain them in a risk-free environment, you know, depending on your climate, it can be pretty expensive. Um, it, it becomes expensive when you can no longer depend on just airflow through the tent to, to cool it adequately. And, you know, if you have to air condition your whole house or something, just to be able to get cold enough air to, to flow through your tent, I, you know, there, there's sort of cost moments in all of this where it no longer makes sense. Especially when costs typically are coming down across the board, I would say they're not on the rise. Uh, most places I'm seeing it's quite the opposite. Costs are coming down across the board, I would say, for the most part. So we want to be as efficient as ourselves as cheap home growers as possible, dollar per gram or dollar per ounce, whatever you want to make yeah. your comparison. Um, one of the commercial people I think that I saw for a while pushing the heavy strip was the Three of Light book. I don't actually own it, but I know a lot of people kind of worship that and got into commercial cultivation with Three of Light. And then also Miami Mango pushed like the Mango Tech day 21 and day 42 leaf strip. Yeah. And I've seen that replicated by a ton of different gardeners and um, it's, it's one option, but I would say I kind of like trying everything. Like I've Jeff Lowenfels has said, like, don't take a single leaf off the plant. And like, I've tried that. I've also gone to the Schwaz end of the spectrum and taken like every single leaf off the plant where it looks like a vine at the beginning. And then you end up with, with just basically buds only. Um, but I, I do think that well, you'll end up with small buds. If you really take all the leaves off the plant. I mean, if you right. take all the leaves off the plant, the plant's going to die. That's um, true. I'll say though, that, it doesn't work well in organic. I haven't seen it work well in organics and it's usually a hit to yield at the end, but uh, I don't see that big of that drastic of a, of a, of that uh, drawback in the synthetic side. And the only thing my mind can wrap around that is, is that you're literally removing all the stores of minerals from that plant and can't easily replace that in an organic situation, but in a synthetic situation where you're feeding it every day, or close to it and everything that it needs, it can recover from that quicker and it can yeah. still get those minerals. Even then, I think you're making it work harder than maybe it needs to. But, and, but that's the difference between shade leaves and, and light leaves, um, Spartan. I mean, you can harvest, if you're in a synthetic grow with you, with you're really well dialed in, um, you're sort of taking off all the safety margin, right? But if you're really well dialed in, you may be able to afford that and strip off all the shade leaves but if you start removing leaves that are getting light directly from the lights, um, you're going to lower the plant's ability to, to harvest those photons. Yeah, I mean, Canico, we left most of the top canopy. We didn't, I'll we say didn't, even the shade leaves we pretty much left. Maybe took one or two. I've, uh, right, right. That, that's it. So it, it's cutting the leaves at the canopy level that are actually receiving the light. That's that's what I almost always advise against cutting off leaves that are, are shaded out. There's reasons to do that. I think you should have a reason to do that, but I mean, not just do it indiscriminately, but there are certainly reasons to do that from time to time. Like if it's getting below 200 PPF D of light and your humidity is too high, those will begin to 
transpire, respire, whatever it is, put out humidity right. that you don't want in your grow space. So that would be a good reason. Uh, but if you have low humidity, then you might be fine just leaving them to get it into the optimal ranges where you're getting closer to that VPD, where the plant might grow better. But since I've kind of played around with it and I've gone like a little bit towards the middle and kind of bounced more towards leaving as much as I can without having the environment get out of whack. And sometimes if like you just leave every single leaf on the plant, they'll start growing into each other and then they'll get leaf on top of leaf and you start risking mold. Sometimes the plant overnight, you'll literally see like it starts selectively just killing off its own leaves because it's so unhappy with the amount of there's just too much leaf on the plant. So it's like, I'm not going to have this leaf load because they're not getting the light. They're not getting the airflow that they want. So it starts to either, you know, slowly die or in some, some cases, like you'll see like several leaves die per night until it gets to the level that it's happy with as far as airflow is concerned and lighting. I think smart poker and chat brings up a good point too. And, and I believe this to be the, uh, I, I agree with him. He says a newer leaves photosynthesize more efficiently than older leaves transmits effect yep. helps explain this in his opinion. And I, and I can agree with that too. Like the old red stem leaves. If you see them, they're looking kind of scraggly and just like hanging off. All not doing too looking. much <laughs> yeah and, and this this may be a caveat I, I hesitate to even say this sometimes because i think it leads growers to be sort of more reckless than they need to be but it, it is true that younger leaves will photosynthesize more efficiently than older leaves and there may be very select leaves that you can remove that will sort of remove an old leaf and expose a younger leaf um but it's tough like that because the leaves themselves adjust to their conditions. Like whether that leaf is going to set up to be a shade leaf or a full light leaf it is going to depend on its experience in the past. And if you cut off a, a, a leaf that's sort of well-adjusted to be harvesting photons to expose one that's not well-adjusted to be fo harvesting photons, there's going to be a, a, a delay and it takes the plant resources to readjust and reallocate to the, that situation. So don't assume that you're always going to sort of benefit by that, even though the principle is true in sort of an abstract theory. It's just the actual opportunities to sort of remove an old leaf that is shading out a younger leaf that is able and ready to start photosynthesizing. That's just rare. Yeah, there's more factors like it could just get light stressed and shocked from simply it wanted to be in that shade. That's where it was expecting to be. And then we came along and cut off the thing that was protecting it from getting too much light for where it was at in its development. So exactly. Or what it was used to. I mean, plants get used to what they're exposed to. So a leaf that's out there soaking up thousand PPFD all day long gets used to that. The leaf right below it, that's in its shadow that that's getting like 200 PPFD it is, is not really prepared to, to face that full onslaught. I'll say since I switched to LED and I've begun, I have a dimmer and I've got the ability to measure it with in a pretty high degree of accuracy at any given moment uh, fairly easily. Now that I am very confident, I'm giving what I consider to be the, an adequate amount of light for the plants. If I leave a, a lot more uh, no, like bud sites or nodes than I used to, I used to lollipop higher just because I saw everyone else doing it. I wanted more airflow. I just wanted to not risk mold or mildew or whatever. But with a good exhaust fan and good air movement within the tent, I realized I could keep it within a reasonable range and leave a lot more on there. And then by the end of the grow, the stuff that I thought would be LARF ends up being 
like nice buds, like at least quarter size and something that I would pop off and want to grind up and smoke a bowl of. And it's like, well, you know, I could have stripped that off and got nothing from it or left it there and allowed the plant to take that energy from up top and redistribute it down because these spots are completely shaded out, but because the top is getting enough light, it's able to use it throughout the plant. And, you know, you might get your A and B buds up top, but those, you know, C buds might not be as, as bad as you think, or they might even be, you know, like a B grade. And, and some people might not even notice the difference of that very top and very bottom. And sometimes the bottoms are even better because if you have too much yeah. light in some circumstances, you're getting like terpier and, uh, you know, I don't know, a little bit different uh, type of bud down low I, than you are up top. Yeah. I think strain specific is applied to that whole thing because I definitely believe that I had plants that like the smallest, larfiest looking nug, if you smoke it, it will get you just as high as the same amount, you know, weighted out as the top buds. But then there's other ones that it seems to me to be a notable difference where if you take the, maybe not the top one, even like, you know, I like the two little satellite nugs right underneath the top bud. Those seem like my favorites. But if you take the top bud and a smaller bud at the bottom of certain plants, the ones at the bottom seem to be uh, less potent, less tasty and everything. But I think there's a good finesse to that, like you're saying, save some more of that meat in the middle and maybe not lollipop so much, even if you're using it for edibles or something, if it's not going to hurt your environment. I'm starting to lean that way. And I think really, if you don't leave too much lower bud growth potential on the plant and you have a good canopy that's harvesting a good density of light, those lower buds will develop just as well as those, you know, close to the top will develop. The, The big problem, I think, is, you know, the plant will prioritize the buds towards the top. If, if it only has so much energy, it will prioritize those at the top and sort of underdevelop those at the bottom um, and thinking about sort of that cumulative energy. But if it has enough, I mean, I don't know, I usually try to, to run this and I, I clean up my bottoms for the bud sites as well, such that, you know, there's, there's the right amount. And that really depends on the density, the size of the canopy, a lot of other factors. But I think the number one cause of, of LARF is really just leaving too many lower bud sites um, so the plant can't support them all. I agree. I definitely think uh, that that is a huge contributor. I think a lot of people don't have enough light generally, so that could also contribute to their LARF. Um, We talked a lot earlier about equipment that we liked and felt like was a good investment. I feel like all of us at this point, for the most part, have a good enough light where some people out there are still growing with cheapy crap that they got online. That was the, you know, least expensive thing that they could to get into growing. And like Doc said earlier with uh, home growers, a lot of us are budget constrained and you might not know what's the best thing getting into it. And some people just, they want to get started and they might not take the time to do the research. So they just Google grow light and they buy the first thing that popped up. And so they might be underlit and not have just the total amount of light, the PPF that they would need for their grow space to have the potential to even like where I'm at right now, I'm very happy because I've got a a quality light. I know the amount of light that it's putting out. And since I switched and got it dialed in, like I've seen, I know it's how such train dependent, but I've seen the last 10 or 15 strains all consistently throw fat 
nugs down at the bottom that I'm smoking on and I'm stoked about. Like when I'm going to dry it and I hang it up, I look at it like next to the top and I'm like, this is like so close. Like if the top is a nine or a 10, that very, very, very bottom of the plant, like I'm talking, like I said, one or two toothpick sized branch that I just leave on there just to see if it'll even produce anything. Um, they end up throwing fat nugs and I'm just like always blown away by how that stuff that I never, ever kept before is and granted, I have pretty high CO2 levels. Like I've mentioned several times in the past, I'm like 1200 to 1900 uh, parts per million CO2 all the time. And that does help. I run a pretty good amount of light and where I'm at in San Diego, it stays fairly warm. So my stuff uh, is pretty easy to keep within the VPD range and, and happy. Uh, fortunate for me, I don't have to do a ton of work to keep that going. I know a lot of people have much more difficult environments to manage. So I consider myself very lucky in that regard, but yeah, yeah. Once, once you dial it in, if you can really see like all those factors, like now that I'm in the earth box, I'm pretty confident that all the nutrients are more in line than they were when I was growing in pots. I've got the CO2 dialed in, got the light dialed in all these other things. Uh, you can kind of push that little bit, you know, if, if you cut off, I don't know, 20% before maybe do 15 or 10% of the bottom or whatever it is and see, uh, just wonder, maybe you try it on one plant and, try it for yourself, see what you think of that bottom, but is it that much worse than the top or, you know, is it something that you could turn into edibles like that I was talking about or oil? Um, I think saving a lot of that stuff, even like late flower, uh, if it has frost on it, throw it into a bag. You can throw that into RSO and stuff later on. It might lower your return a little bit, but it has different cannabinoids and terpenes and things that are valuable as medicine that we often might overlook. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting comment there. I don't know. A bunch of things sort of caught my eye, but the one at the end, I would say the final thing about the de-leafing to the extent that I have a final thing ever. I mean, I'm sure this is going to come up again, but to the extent that you do it, it it's best to do it before the end of the stretch. Um, so once the plants stop growing vegetatively, um, they're not really well set up to repair themselves from injuries and other things. Um, when they're in the midst of vegetative growth, they will recover from injury very fast. And when they're in the midst of this stretch, that, that period of, which I like to call it the bolt, um, a period of vigorous growth following their onset of flowering, um, you can do a lot of things to the cannabis plants and they won't bat an eye where, you know, a few weeks later, it's going to take much longer for the plant to recover from, from even a simple de-leafing. Or if you expose new leaves by de-leafing, it's going to take longer for those new leaves to adjust to now, you know, receiving a full dose of light and other things like that. Now, I know it's not always possible and stuff happens <laughs> that you need to sort of respond to later on in the grow. But to the extent that it's possible, your plants will definitely be happier if you can finish all of the aggressive training before they stop. Uh, vegetative growth, which is at the end of the stretch. So um, I think that's really good advice because again, I've, I've seen, I've suffered myself from, I'm a super cropper. Somebody earlier was talking about the chiropractic method. I do that almost every time where like I super crop kind of in between every single stock and that helps them support themselves. But I've done the occasional too late super crop where I had a nice, beautiful top that was perfectly positioned in my canopy and I super cropped it down, expecting it to like come back up and then it just kind of like flopped there and it was a little did. bit limp and yeah 
it was it was a disappointment yeah. it was a not and the so knuckle will take forever if it even does hard knob like into that knuckle right it, it's just not the same i mean it just it's just not the same the plant's not doing its vigorous growth i mean we all know that because the damn things like stop they go from like growing like really fast to like you know stopping and it gets to the point where it's almost like boring it's beautiful that's the most enjoyable like smelling and looking part of the grow but once it stops stretching and it's just fattening up you're literally just like okay it's like the exact same height yeah, as yeah. It was yesterday and it's just a little bit fatter a little bit fatter yeah. a little we bit the waiting curling exactly. it in. exactly exactly it is a beautiful definitely process though but uh, i definitely uh don't recommend super cropping uh weeks after the uh stretches over because you'll have a similar results that i just got tau just copied a question from a viewer it says uh, I'd like to ask all of your takes on it as well. Hey, it's a great show on Sunday. I was wondering if you can help me out. I live in, I don't know if I want to say it. I'll say it. Fuck it. They wrote it. I live in Long Island for the second year in a row. My plants are getting bud rot just before harvest. Is there anything I can use? Thanks. I'll pass it to Matthew. Yeah, there are a few things that you can do, but um, it's kind of the same problem that we have with the budworms and like what we were saying earlier that like, well, first I would just want to say this. So like, you know, it's not spontaneous generation, right? The petritus has to come from somewhere. Um, it's just not out in the ether and just materializes. So there Some are say spores. it's ubiquitous or maybe that's powdery mildew. Some people say it's kind well, of everywhere it's if... around everywhere which is true yeah. definitely i think i think so WPM is pretty persist. much ubiquitous but yeah but yeah yeah I, I guess yeah i'm just trying to point out and you're totally correct that the um so like those spores have to get into a location where they're going to germinate and do well and that's why what we were talking about is so kind of like sad is that like you can you can grow like a a large sort of um, dank bud, but um, that is also like the perfect environment for these spores to germinate. And they'll do it like in like a crevice that might be really hard to get, even if you were to apply something like with a spray. And you wouldn't know to apply something necessarily because much like it is with powdery mildew, um, you know, the first parts of botrytis colonization can, can be uh, pretty much invisible. Um, you know, for a long, for a pretty long period of time until it's kind of too late. So you start seeing like the wispy mycelial growth and that kind of a thing. And botrytis can also exist as like an endophyte and be like basically visually imperceptible in the tissues of plants um, and unclear to what extent that happens in cannabis, but that has been shown in other plants as well. So to get to the treatment part. So now that I've explained that kind of context, um, uh, I know people who have had uh, success and it's almost totally predicated on whether or not they're about they're able to like detect early and treat early otherwise if you get to a point where it's like botrytis all over your buds um, there's nothing you can really do to remediate that with like a spray or anything like that you could perhaps kill it though and that could help um, you know overall keep it from spreading to other plants potentially but the actual damage that's already happened is is you know it's kind of already happened um, Potassium bicarbonate has worked really well, also works really well on other fungi like powdery mildew. And there's also some, um, uh, there are also some like mycoparasite products that I'm blanking on off on the top of my head, but I'll put them in chat 
um, let me go make sure that my, you know, let me go check my notes as it were. But yeah, that's the main thing. There are things that you can apply, but the really most important thing is being diligent. So if you are getting like really dank buds, or if you're getting to that point at the very end, um, you know, try to be super vigilant um, in that, in that sort of product zone, because, and also to that matter, like, when you go to dry as well, um, I had a friend who lost a bunch of his uh, harvest because of botrytis post-harvest and not uh, not before. Um, and so that was just a factor. We think it's a factor of um, they were trying to compensate for how dry the environment was that they were in. They needed to dry, but they were in a desert. So it's very dry there. Um, and they made, locally, they made it more humid in like the jars that they were putting them in. Um, or were they jars? They might have been a different container now that I think about it. But anyways, they kind of like, they kind of over overcompensated and they, the botrytis just germinated. And we're pretty sure it's botrytis based on the morphology. We didn't get it tested or anything like that. But it looked very similar to botrytis that I've seen elsewhere. So, so yeah, if it makes you feel any better, you know, there's probably botrytis spores on your, on your bud and other places, um, kind of like on your shirt and that kind of thing. Uh, at least it's possible. So yeah, you have to kind of just mitigate that. Yeah. I will, I'll salvage bud that's kind of adjacent to visible botrytis. Um, yeah, I know what you mean. But not, and, and sometimes that includes like bud higher on the cola where the botrytis was found. Um, oftentimes it includes bud lower on the cola where the botrytis was found. And that, that cola is like out of there, like as soon as you see it. Right. Definitely agree with that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm not going to throw away a bunch of bud that, that's still visible. <laughs> All right. Um, I, you know, I, and I've brought this up before and I think Matthew's less comfortable with this statement, but I don't think that there's a significant human health concern with botrytis. Um, I think oh, with the spores, it, I don't think so either. Oh, or with this. like consuming the product that was so, contaminated. If you smoke oh, that, it, if you smoke it, it is a little bit safer. I was reading Kevin McKernan, and, and this might not apply specifically to botrytis, but it was in regards to mycotoxins. Um, the puerilization, the fire, the flame, the burning, yeah, it is actually a slight sterilization effect for some of these things. Not to say that you should go and smoke you know, moldy or dirty stuff that, you know, is field testing or anything like that. But vaporization yeah. is much more harmful for a medical user. If there's like aspergillus, for example, yes, I was going to mention smoked that. it, then yeah. it may have been safer. Um, so in a rare circumstance, smoking is actually significantly more safe because of those types of risks. <laughs> Because you're yeah, incinerating but, uh, it, like quite it, literally. Yeah. Right? If, you yes. smoke a, if you smoke a joint though, that, the first half of the joint that's not burning could sneak a bunch of spores through. You could inhale, I mean, but, you know, yeah. considering or it goes down where into we the bomb were, bowl, into the water, and then that can. God, yeah. God only knows what the hell we were smoking before it yeah. was like kind of legal, and even before then, there was spare spraying paraquat and stuff, and God knows what. But still, we still you want clean material. But I'm you know that. if you I'll smoke take, paraquat. <laughs> okay, I, I, I'm with Doc. I'll, if I see botrytis or anything, like I've thought outdoors, it was common. It is common. I'll yeah. cut the whole branch off and I'll cut out like the botrytis and like a nug above it, a nug below it, and then right. below and above that, I'll keep and I'll smoke that. I won't sell it to anyone or you know, or exactly. pass it on. But I'll use it. But 
I told the kid, and I think that I wish Brandon Rust was here. His micro plus, maybe. I, I, I am a firm believer because that one year, every time it rained, I ran out there and I put uh, beneficial bacteria and fungi. I sprayed a little extra heavy strength because the plants were still wet with rain when I sprayed the stuff on it. And I went pretty crazy. I mean, the liquid was dark and I was like kind of nervous and scared, but it seemed to keep it like really super duper too. minimal, minimal. Very and, uh but at the I wonder um, if it was the that I oh maybe it was... it was the acidic part that did it but yeah, yeah. yeah if you dude it's like a two or there, three ph i think if you run out there and uh you have to be vigilant with the butt with the uh budworms too i don't believe in this bt you mean you have to have that stuff there the first time they chew on the plant they I have think, to ingest you know? it oh. yeah yeah so you have it to does work though, though. I am a fan all right, of BT. All right. Uh, it works okay. i will be a fanboy of BT, right. i think for a while well that was my experience <laughs> i've seen but, it work really well out here I've seen it not work. Vigilant, I, vigilant. It, it, it true, sometimes too. doesn't work. I agree yeah. with that. But I, so yeah. that's the advice I kind of gave him was to try and like um, really indate it with beneficial fungi and bacteria. So that's present there already before the bud rock could take hold. And like I said, when it rains, that's when it when it really it would I because I remember going back to the plants and they after it rained, it was amazing how that shit grew. And then sometimes you you think like I'd be like, all right, this is a good branch. Look at the nugs. And then you start like peeling it open a little bit and then it's just throughout and it's just <laughs> sickening. I've thrown away garbage, plastic garbage bags full of beautiful looking buds, but they were all garbage. So That's yeah, or maybe not garbage. I probably could have salvaged it with a bud wash and like use it for edibles or something. I don't know, but I at the time I wasn't, you know, aware of possible other I'm not a fan but of I that. Probably, I probably wouldn't have done it anyway. Yeah, it was bad. In my outdoor spot or my outdoor gardens at my um I get like the last year when I had the um, uh, what was it the sparkle face going? I did have one nug that I, I was assuming that I, I didn't like identify, but obviously it was some kind of bud rot, and uh, I cut it off and I walked over to the compost pile and threw it on the compost pile because what my thinking was there was is uh, there's going to be something in nature that fucks with whatever that fungus was that's going to show up and fuck it up hopefully and it's going to be in my compost and i'll be able to use that compost when i do my top dresses with it to help hopefully impart some kind of resistance or some kind of help with my plant i'll say i definitely treat that stuff like it's death you know they put it in radioactive and it's like that's good practice for sure but i like to put it on a compost pile for something to show up to fuck with that because it seems like there's always a predator or always something that fucks with something else if you just let nature give it enough time. Yeah, as long as it's not like just a whole pile of uh, botrytis, you know. Like <laughs> I believe it. You know, the good you have to the good has to outnumber the bad for it to take over the bad and clean it up. I would think. But yeah, that's a great. I've yeah. heard both both stories. You shouldn't put contaminated stuff in your compost. But I'm more with you, Spartan. I'd throw it in there, and and hopefully the the good stuff will eat it up and then they'll be stronger the next time it comes around. So hot versus cold matters static. too. If you get a hot, yeah. com hot compost going, you're going to kill a lot of that stuff. Mine's I think you got to be careful with the kind of contaminant, but I, I like somewhat agree with this. Like on the one hand, I think that there, there are ways you could do it and um, you know, promulgate the problem and there's ways you can do it, which I think would be a better way to process it. Um, you know, using compost, for example. So like, it really would depend on how you achieve that objective, I think. But I also want to say that I, I agree with what you say, Jack, about the uh, aspergillosis. It's no joke. Um, you know, I'm not saying that every single flower anyone ever consumes ever should be like 
triple checked by some you know organization you know always and that'd be unsafe to, to do otherwise but i also agree with dr coco says here about like like cutting off you know um a moldy piece or certain pieces so that you have you know you have product that is like you know ostensibly totally fine like it's not showing the signs of the mycelium or that kind of a thing um and yeah, it, like it, it does spread. And so culling it is really incredibly important and detecting it early is like really, just like with the budworms actually, you know, the budworms are kind of a huge problem. Even if you were to kill them, they would die in your bud and then rot. So it's sort of similarly here, the botrytis bud rot is gonna rot in your plant. And the longer you keep it in there, the more likely that it's gonna make, you know, millions and billions of spores. And then those yeah. spores will get onto your plant and maybe even a fraction of those germinate. But when you have millions, a fraction, 1% is still quite a bit. And yeah, and so that's kind of how fungi work. So you need to play the statistics game against them. Um, and that's why vigilance is so important. I guess I'm just traumatized because I've, I've seen more than one new grower just decide to call their whole harvest and throw oh. it in the dumpster oh, because yeah. they found a uh. few colas with bud rot, you know, and they're only a couple of weeks from harvest. And it's like, they're telling the story and they're like, oh, I already doused it with gasoline and set it on fire. And I'm like, no, <laughs> like you didn't need to do that. Like, Oh yeah. I'm traumatized. I totally, I empathize with this statement. So deeply yeah. because it's like, or people will see like a rove beetle or a springtail and they're like, I could, I spent so much time trying to kill it. I even used the bad stuff in systemics. And I'm like, that's so bad. I'm so sorry to hear that. You didn't have to do anything. Right. Um, yeah. The I totally best, empathize with that. The best story I've heard was when they're, um, they're trying to grow the you know that that mold on top of the soil and someone would be like oh this shit got moldy i threw it all out mm-hmm. and my you know it definitely wasn't harmful you know yeah. beneficial most likely and they threw out the whole lot yeah I, I understand being cautious but um at a certain point like when do you expect people to have like a certain level of like understanding because um you know people don't study bugs or fungi typically so um, for them, everything is a cockroach, you know, everything is a mold that'll kill you potentially because they don't have a frame of reference. So that's why step zero is learning about plants and some of the common things to interact with them. Uh, but then there's people out there trying to sell you, uh, you know, any, any, any kind of product out there that'll, you know, kill whatever ails you. So don't worry about it. Um, and uh, yeah, that's a little misinformative in my opinion. Definitely get get the panicked comments about and questions about the the salt deposits that form on fabric pots, and that this is some sort of mold taking over my oh, garden. Oh yeah. Um, or the algae. I thought that myself. I'll <laughs> raise algae. my hand. I thought that was mold myself. I had no fucking idea. That when I started growing in cocoa, I had fabric pots, and I was like, "What in the fuck is this shit growing on the outside of my pots?" And I yeah. started feeling it. It was like literally crystally, and I was like, "Oh, I, I over fertilized and let it get too dry." Yep. Yeah. Um, or or the algae that grows on the perlite on the top. There of the you pond, go. And that this is like, oh my god, do I need to use bleach or something? And it's like, whoo. So. <laughs> No, those are just living things. Neither of those are, are real concerns that you have to worry about at all, right? So I wouldn't you know, say so. I, I mean, maybe a substrate for some fly, for certain kinds of like flies and stuff, but not not generally. The biofilm maybe can hide some na- other nasties, but like, yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's I not worth taking you. drastic action like killing your plants. 
Exactly. Um, so that, that's that's one rule, I guess, in, in this area that we're talking about right now is like, you know, there's some drastic, if you have a problem part of the plant, go ahead and you can cut that problem part of the plant, especially with bud rot or something off. Um, but, you know, before you destroy your crop, try to get a second opinion. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, I'm speaking to like new growers that have never had problems with like coming to their first harvest and yeah. yeah maybe like, just uh, quarantine it or something, but yeah, wait, wait till you get a second opinion for sure. Yeah. I always think people know as much as I do about everything. It's, I got to Oh, you know that. way more than most people. <laughs> Thank you, Doc. <laughs> I will it's say. It's true. I, uh, like. Go ahead. Sorry, Matt. I was just sorry. I was going to say with, uh, with like, uh, you know, I mean, obviously experiences will differ. And it's important to like keep an open mind, but yeah, like, you know, recognize what you don't know. If you're, especially like Dr. Goka says, if you're a newer grower, not everything that looks, um, it's a corollary to not all that glitters is gold, you know, not all that looks kind of dangerous necessarily is. Um, and try to, you know, if you're a little squeamish about bugs and things, you know, just, um, uh, what's, what's it called? Uh, exposure therapy. Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> exposure to- therapy. Yes, to like uh, insects and spiders, you know, watch a couple of videos of jumping spiders they are very charismatic and maybe you'll be able to, that's worked for some people, you know. Dare I uh, say cute. Dare I, yeah, definitely. I would say that they're inquisitive looking and um, they can kind of make you rethink that reaction potentially. Aside from uh, becoming more friendly with uh, pests, I will say to the comments we were talking about earlier with BT, like uh, some of us have had effectiveness with it and some of us haven't. Part of the thing I, I find interesting about IPM is that it's kind of a whole system and you can use BT, usually BTI in my circumstance, as part of a solution. It might not be a cure-all. It's not going to fix everything. Mel Frank is a guy I respected, a photographer, early author for a while. And he claimed if you just use Tanglefoot and BTI, you'd be able to cultivate in California with no pest issues. And I gave that advice to a few people and they ended up having pest issues. So I uh, learned really quickly that, you know, you can't just take everybody's uh, claims at face value and that it's good to do more due diligence about what area you're cultivating in, the area surrounding the plants, uh, you know, the season that you're growing in. There's a whole lot of factors. And to Matthew's point, once you learn about stuff, it becomes a whole lot less scary. So like Doc and uh, Tao and even myself now have, done and talked about um you can just if you see like botrytis or white powdery mildew uh maybe cut off that whole branch if it's your first time and you don't want to sort through it but you can get to the point where you can identify exactly where it is cut off those nugs maybe one above one below just to get rid of the stuff that you might not be able to see there's some uh, literally you know so small that the naked eye isn't going to catch it but most likely going to be in those buds that are touching it above and below um but you don't have to go and throw away your whole entire harvest so like i just had uh, Amy Aces, seven grams got white powdery mildew, but seven plus ounces were very healthy and smokable. So I, I'm not worried at all about that seven grams. I cut it out and threw it away. But that was my own uh, issue. I didn't have enough airflow and didn't maintain the plant, didn't do enough of the plant training that we talked about tonight. And uh, so you run into those issues, but sometimes it's fun to push the boundaries of what's possible. Like how humid can I get it? How hot can I get it without getting punished? And I finally got to that tip. And now I know dial back just a little bit. Perfect. Yeah. You know what I was no. going to say? If, if you look at your plants, especially outdoors a lot, you'll, and you see something that's off, like, like there's one leaf near the tip of the 
no, near the tip of the bud. And it's just like turning, it's dying and like molting in. I, I've seen pictures on Instagram and I hit him up with a DM. I'm like, dude, go look underneath that one leaf right there and tell me what you see. And sure enough, you can see the he had rot underneath there. So if you're really paying attention, anything that looks off, just go up to that nug and like peel, pull it back a little, look underneath there and and uh, always be scoping for out of, like something that's out of the normal and go investigate it because that could be something definitely, you know? Yeah, I, I check my big nugs, man. My big colas when I'm getting towards harvest, I'll go around looking for suspect leaves. I mean, any leaf that's like not as healthy as it should be and, and the leaf yep. should be healthy at that point. I mean, the plants like chugging along. So if you get leaves in the canopy, you know, they're usually like two, three inches below the, the tip of the bud and, and the leaf just starts to turn brown or crinkle exactly. up. You've got bud rot. I, I mean, I'd, I'd bet money on that scenario. You got bud rot. So, yeah, do a scan specifically for that. It's always going to be like the, your biggest nugs and, you know, check them all out. Make sure you're you're finding any of that stuff early. I'd, I'd, I'd rather uh, kind of finger mess with it a little bit and pull it open and then get all the way down to that very base of that stem. Because if you pull off like, oh, you're like, oh, the, the tips are brown and crinkly and you just say cut off the edge of that leaf. Well, that rest of that leaf is going to die and kind of suck into the bud and then boom, that bud rot's going to spread right through that spot. So if you can take it, kind of open it up, get all the way down in there with scissors or even like your fingernail and pop it and yank it out of there. Like Doc was saying, if you're seeing brown, crinkly, uh, even like heavy yellow tips where it's starting to look not like a fade, like a, it, it might fade to yellow, it might fade to orange, it might fade to purple or red. But I think we all know the difference between that and like a crinkly yellow tip for maybe over fertilization, maybe you didn't water it in time or one of those other stress reasons. So getting rid of those latent flowers, an absolute must in my opinion. With that said, we've run all the way up to the 545 hour out here on the West Coast. And that's typically when I pass it off to Spartan Grow. And so final thoughts and uh, shout outs from you. Yeah, shout out to everyone. Thank you, Jack. Shout out to everyone. There's my dog snoring, sorry. Shout out to everyone in the chat and uh, everyone on the panel, man. I love love doing this show and I love these shows. These shows are actually um, are really cool because it seems like uh, we had information for new growers and intermediate growers and even advanced growers. So it was, I think, hell, I learned some stuff. I'm sure there's people in the chat everybody learned at least something. So those are my favorite ones. So big ups to everyone on the panel today. And uh, I don't know if we have a guest or what the fuck is going on, but I'm going to the Michigan Bros Grow Show here in about 15 minutes and I'll see everybody over there. Hope you guys have a good weekend. Have a good Father's Day. All the fathers, all the uh, pet fathers, all the all the fathers count. Even the mothers who have to be fathers. Shout out to them too. So my mom grandfathers. Was, my mom was one of those. So shout out to mom. <laughs> Cheers, Peace everybody. Out, Spartan. See you guys. Peace, Peace Spartan. Spartan. love. And uh, happy Father's Day to you and everybody else out there, and all the plant dads and uh, pet parents. And I, I agree with Spartan. The mothers who have to be the fathers and conversely the single dads out there on mother's day who have to play both uh regardless of gender or whatever it's uh awesome to see a, a individual who's really involved in their kid's life 100 all in and just doing their best uh gotta love to see that both my brothers are uh, have had their first kids so it's, it's great to see how passionate they are and how much it really does change people's lives so big day for a lot of people I, and i know that Many of us uh, aren't able to, some, not a few of us weren't able to make it, but I do appreciate that 
we were all able to come here and I feel like we had a great discussion. It flew by. I can't even believe we're already an hour and 45 minutes in. Like, uh, it's, it is nice when we have a topic because first hour went through it and second hour we, uh, closing it up, but I guess, uh, is there any final thoughts from the panel about either topic, the plant training that you didn't get to talk about, or maybe some equipment that, uh, you've tried and liked or didn't like that you didn't mention earlier? No, I will second the fact that it was a it was a fun show though, and and a good set of topics too. I agree with that. I feel like we had a really like diverse contribution from much of the panel, which is always fun to see. Sometimes we got to see Matthew Gates in fun glasses. That was my favorite part of today's show. It almost yeah, felt like I a face it... reveal. You haven't been uh, yeah. on camera in so long. Yeah, exactly. I thought it would. I thought it might be a little bit uh, fun to do that, right? <laughs> for the long term, long term viewers who probably haven't seen that or have not seen my videos on my channel, which you should do, but because um, I do reveal my face there as well. But uh, yeah, I, I I think sometimes the conversation skews a little bit, which is fine. Sometimes we're concerned with something that's more, you know, we might be talking more lights, and I definitely love to learn from Dr. Coco. Or uh, Jack, you're talking about some historical, um, you know, pedigree of certain um, uh, cannabis cultivars, which is very interesting to me as always, um, you know. And so, yeah, so I thought we did a really good job there. And uh, I don't want to be garrulous, but I'm, I'm glad to express it. I, I do enjoy that we are able to touch on so many topics. That some nights are IPM heavier. Some nights Brandon is able to talk pretty heavily about either the science behind or the actual nutrients and, and products he's working with. I have written down in the comments that I prefer micro plus going back to the whole PT conversation. I forgot to mention that earlier, but I do really use and enjoy the micro plus for reasons like Kyle was talking about earlier. Um, also just all the way back to the beginning, talking about the sip container. If you use micro plus and there's some water in the bottom, you don't have to worry as much about the water becoming anaerobic because they have beneficial microbes that uh, are known to operate and thrive and, anaerobic or aerobic conditions. So I've noticed that that's really helped bring some success uh, in cultivating with soil. I'm pretty much water only with remanded soil. The only thing that I water in usually at this point is either some aminos or microbes, but this whole last run has been pure water. The only time I use microbes was on transplants and uh, just straight water since then has been rocking and rolling and really happy with the results. So looks like Tao, you wanted to jump in there as well. Um, I was going to ask, Serenade, is that the tea? Have you guys know offhand? I don't know. I would have to look at like Okay, the yeah, I'm going to have to go sheet. Google it. But uh, Serenade does something that's uh, supposed to help with either PM or Bud Rat or both. Yeah, so, but I was just going to say that, yeah, there's probably... Serenade is um, Bacillus subtilis. Okay. So yeah. that's probably, yeah. Yeah. So I was going to say, there's probably like a lot of products that might be able to thwart off some of the nasties, you know, that uh, we didn't mention. Um, but yeah, labs, like people have preached labs, the KNF uh, making of labs, which is basically bacillus, uh, lactobacillus, but I guess it's somewhat, there's bacillus sub, sub, subtilis in there, I believe. But yeah, I, I think that's like the way to go if you can just oversaturate your plants with beneficials so that most of the bad pathogens can't take hold. I'm a, I, because other than that, it, once it's there, once it's there, it's hard, it's way harder than, than keeping it off 
like to be effective in my eyes. I think that another good one is like EM1 or EM5. The EM yeah, is literally short this. for effective microorganism, mm -hmm. I believe, which I mean, speaks to the, I believe it's a consortium. And I think the EM5 is similar to Brandon's. It has like a purple non-sulfured bacteria and then a handful of other beneficials in there in that micro plus concoction or consortium, as he calls it. Yeah, so that's about the only thing I was thinking to add to the discussion. Before we wrap it up, I guess uh, we could go around quickly on the panel. I, I think I remember Matthew's preferred method, but it's one of the equipments that some of us use. It could be as simple as like a vape pen or something for equipment for consumption. Uh, does anybody have a favorite, whether it's like a, a bong or a vaporizer or any sort of tool to use to consume this lovely plant? Well, joints are my favorite, but I also like atomizers as well. Um, there are some pretty cool models out there. I know that uh, um, you could take like uh, mods that are meant for nicotine uh, juice and things like that. And you can like the mod itself, not the mouthpiece or the container or anything. And you can get ad uh, adapters. Um, Humboldt Vape Tech is uh, pretty popular. And um, I like those, uh, those products that don't use the coils because a lot of that becomes waste. Um, but if you use like a titanium bucket or something like this, that you can not only um, set the uh, heat level at, but also, you know, it just kind of, it is just like a bucket. So like nothing like drips out anywhere else. And you can be very, you don't have to like apply a whole bunch of it. So you can be very efficient as well. And it's mobile. So that's all good. I mean, but joints are like the original, in my opinion. I mean, they aren't really the original, but uh, some people uh, that's all they'll smoke if they're like looking for flavor or whatever. Like they're some old heads or OGs I know. They're like they only smoke joints and they won't have it. They won't do a dab. They won't take a bong hit. They're only going to smoke a joint and they feel that that's the best flavor. I've heard some describe it as like a joint almost vaporizes the bud a little bit because the cherry you've got the burning that's happening on the end, but then right before where the bud is close to the cherry where it's not quite being burnt some of those terpenes are volatizing so as you smoke the joint you're sort of vaporizing and smoking it at the same time it's yeah. some people's argument and then you're also smoking the resin as you go deeper into the the joint um i don't really like joints i like dryer vaporizers but i haven't had one in a while and i need to get a new one i definitely think for flavor purposes a dryer vaporizer at least when it's clean is like the best flavor experience i've ever had with cannabis um I'd, I'd agree with that as far as being able to like say like oh this tastes like blueberry or pine yeah or it is like it almost tastes like artificial flavoring sometimes out of these strains with, with a good vape um because it's like so strong like the grape flavor right or the the pine flavor or whatever it's like wow um so I definitely think, I mean, it's a whole different sort of flavor profile than combusting it, but combustion is bring so it much easier. So I usually smoke out of a pipe. I love rolling joints, but I, I, it's like, it's sort of a lot to smoke all at once. If you just want to be like, you know, puffing on a pipe periodically while you do work. So that's um, a good point. Yeah. It joins more like an event, you know, like I'm going to go. It's and a commitment. Like, yeah i mean when it's just yourself if you got like people to share the joint with that's that's different but man if you're just going to spark up that joint like smoke a whole joint by yourself that's going to be like what i'm doing for a while 
It's because uh, you're smoking well, good weed. If you smoke garbage, people can smoke joint after joint and they barely even feel anything. I like yeah. to share one with my wife. We go for a walk on the beach. and no, uh, I'm going to be like coughing and I need a box of Kleenex close by. I'm going to be like choking on this thing. So yeah, it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. But I'm going to get pretty high and I'm not going to be able to be like, you know, working on something while I'm doing that. So I think uh, you guys have inspired me as I do kind of look like the zigzag man right now with the uh, longer beard to go roll up some zigzags after the show and smoke a joint. I like smoking out of everything. And uh, yeah, I like what Doc says. Like when I'm driving and uh, the little pipe is always with me. I don't go anywhere without my little pipe and some weed just in case. You never know when you might hit that two hour traffic jam with the damn guy got killed and they cut the road off and you're the second guy in line waiting for the cops to clear the road. And if you have no weed, that sucks. But um. Uh, one of the things that I found, it. like, oh, let me, yeah. that was such a specific and awesome example of when you want to have weed. I would just love that, man. I'm dying over here. It's like when I saw that show, that movie Castaway, I carried seeds and weed with me everywhere. But um, one thing I found, first off, everybody clean all your, your smoking material devices like bong water should be cleaned daily. They say that stuff grows in there like nasties um, twice daily but, if you can. The little the bowl that pulls out, I'll like uh, kind of like paintbrush uh, a little vegetable oil or coconut oil or some just a little bit on it. So don't get stuck in there. I hate when I pull out the bowl and the stem sticks with it and the whole thing starts coming up. So that's a little trick, just a little bit. So it doesn't uh, stick to it. But if it's you should have it all clean. So it really doesn't stick anyway, most likely. But yeah, that's what I'll uh, my two cents. But yeah, I love a joint. I love a bowl. I love a bong. I love a volcano bag, you know, all of it. It's all good. I love eating it, too. I'll say I prefer the uh, Vapor Brothers vape with the whip over the volcano because the bag, I think it gets a little bit stale just sitting in there, where if you yeah, pull it through yeah. like a, a tube, it's just a little bit fresher and I get more flavor coming off that. Vapor Brothers is like looks like a pencil sharpener, a little desktop style. I run it up to my bong, but 95% of the time at this point, I because my vape gets dirty and then I don't end up wanting to clean it, I just... The bong's a little easier to clean, pack, load, all that other stuff. So smoke a lot of bong bowls. So with that said, we've come up to the last few minutes. So I'm going to pass it to Dr. MJ for final shout outs. You just gave me the idea, man. Once all this stuff becomes legal, we can start sending this stuff through the mail. I'm going to start like one of these services where like you basically buy a, a like a vape kit and you just send it back when it's dirty and you get a new one sent to you that's clean and we'll like clean them for you, you know, like a subscription service because that's the issue, man. Nobody wants to clean these damn things. Um, anyways. I am Dr. MJ Coco uh, from CocoForCannabis.com. I got a YouTube channel, Dr. MJ Coco. I am finally, and I've said this like weeks ago, but I'm actually going to do a premiere this week. I'm going to be doing the FCE 3000 from Mars and giving it away during the premiere. So pay attention to my channel to make sure you don't miss that. And um, yeah, we're doing the, the Grower Love giveaway this month at Coco for Cannabis too. So if you need a new grow light, we're giving away the Metacro Smart 8, which is a 760 watt eight bar LED uh, grow light uh, for free. You just register, you follow some of the people that do this show, some of our other friends and, and community members, and you get extra chances to win. That's on the deals and discounts page at Coco for Cannabis. And um, happy Father's Day to, to all the fathers. Uh, happy Juneteenth. And yeah, I'm Dr. MJ Coco. Thanks for a wonderful show, guys. Thank you, as always, for joining us and uh, providing so much valuable information to not only this community, but your community as well. 
and having uh, such a great website full of awesome information out there. Next up, we've got Matthew Gates. Yeah, I definitely want to echo that. Um, I was reflecting, as I often do, that because uh, sometimes I critically analyze things and sometimes it's because I'm pretty sure it's not true and sometimes it's because I just want to get people's inferences. But um, yeah, if there, I mean, it keeps people honest. Like if there aren't people out there who are reviewing things, giving their opinions, then, you know, that isn't them. <laughs> it helps other people. It helps us understand what's going on. And we can't be experts in everything. So I definitely learn a lot from that. Um, you can check out my videos about such subjects on my YouTube channel, Zenthanol. I also uh, post and repost a lot of uh, scientific literature, as well as my own experiences and musings about integrated pest management and that sort of a thing on my um, Instagram account, which is at SyncAngel, as well as on Twitter at SyncAngel. In fact, I just posted about a professor who is looking for videos of um, larvae, like caterpillars and things like this, um, that are kind of worm-like, um, and seeing if they have a swimming ability, because they found some caterpillars that were floating using their hairs and they were able to swim across a puddle which is actually kind of interesting so um yeah kind of cool stuff like that um yeah so thanks for the excellent chat questions as well as interaction on the panel i look forward to our mutual success thanks as always for joining us appreciate your input and uh i do second that uh the chat and everybody else's feedback is much much appreciated and last and certainly not least the american one uh, yeah, first, happy Father's Day to everyone, and I triple ditto and concur that tonight went quick, and it was a great discussion, and uh, yeah, it was excellent. Um, I'm the American One on YouTube, and the American One underscore with underscore 18s on the IG. If you guys want to try and find me, I'm there. Uh, you can hit me up in the DM anytime, and uh, yeah, thanks for coming by, everybody. Thank you, and I'll keep it short. You heard all my stuff at the top of the show. There's my logo there. And uh, you know where you can find me. The only thing I didn't mention was if you want a copy of the book, 50 Strains of Green, you can go to 50strains, S-T-R-A-I-N-S dot com for that. But thank you so much, everyone, for listening and support. Uh, we're going to go back next week to another chat Q&A because I feel like uh, this week we didn't really get to we got a few of them in there. But I love to uh, get the chat involved and maybe we'll pull some of those people that we kind of brought the call out. If you haven't been on the show before, I'd love to get uh, some new faces to come on for the first time. And maybe uh, even if you don't show your face, just uh, ask a question, maybe show off your garden if you feel comfortable. It'd be awesome. Uh, getting to meet more of the community on the show is really something that I love to do and uh, highlight the amazing people within our community. So thank you all so much for joining. This has been Jack Greenstock and uh, the rest of the panel. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week. Grow love. Grow love, everyone.